Good morning, church. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I love singing with you in this room. We can hear each other's voices. The choir blends in with the congregation. It's just glorious. I needed you today. Um, I, hopefully you need me. Uh, but I needed you. Uh, some days are a little brighter of spirit than others. And singing with you restores the energy that I, that I so need in my own life. So thank you. So, so glad to be with you today. We have a very special guest guests with us today. Pastor Chris Lyons and his wife Connie are here. Could you stand up, sir? And turn around so everybody can see you. Thank you. Pastor Lyons, when did you pastor Wheaton Bible Church? 71 to 88. How many of you sat under Dr. Lyons' teaching? Yeah. Dr. Lyons, I continue to hear things like this. Lon, we really like your preaching, but did you ever get to hear <laughs> Dr. Lyons? So wonderful to have you both here today. Yeah. Yes, God bless you. All right. I'm going to uh, carry on in our Upside Down Kingdom study. And where we're going to start today is actually in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 13 through 16. So please open your Bibles, or in just a couple moments, I'll also put it on the screen. But I've chosen a picture to start the sermon this morning. So take a look at this picture, if you will. That, of course, is the picture of Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem, though that's the old city. And you'll note that the, the walls are, are ablaze with light. In the last five years, I've had the opportunity to take two GO teams to Israel, where we witness to uh, Arab Muslims and where we witness to Jewish people without Christ. One of the highlights of that is always when we finally get to Jerusalem, because you have to, you're down low and you have to climb up to nearly 2,500 foot elevation. And I especially love it when we arrive in Jerusalem in the evening because of the, the walls are lit with such glory. Now, these aren't the original walls in the time of Jesus. These are hundreds of years later, but they typify ancient walls. And it's so beautiful. And everybody that's on the trip goes, wow, ooh, ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem behind the walls. And then I got to thinking, there's something about me that doesn't like that. There's something about me that says, why would they hide themselves behind walls? Now, we know in ancient lands, walls were great protection for a society. I, I don't minimize that. I, under, I understand all of that. But if you will, the walls around Jerusalem symbolize what had happened to the Jewish people who'd been called to be a witness to the whole world, to be a light unto all the Gentiles. In fact, we have that in a text for you from Isaiah 49 and 6. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But as those hundreds of years went on, as those centuries kept going on, the people of Israel began to slowly see themselves as superior. And you know what happens whenever a race or an ethnicity begins to think of itself as superior. 
And instead of understanding that they had been chosen to be evangelists to the nations, they slowly started pulling in and pulling in and pulling in and being a super race and no longer carrying the passion for bringing God's knowledge to the world. Jerusalem behind the walls. That all changes when Jesus Christ arrives. As we saw last week, he goes up on the top of a hill there in Matthew chapter 5. He sits down, which was the pattern for teachers in that day, and the crowds begin to gather around him, and the only way we can typify it is everything is turned upside down. He starts talking about character qualities that we don't think of as qualities, a.k.a. poor in spirit, mourning all the time, peacemakers, meekness, things the world doesn't honor. Evidently, Jesus does, and he says, those who will be a part of my kingdom must start thinking upside down. I value different things. And so we did the Beatitudes last week. Those of you who weren't here, um, please uh, find that on the web and listen to it because it gave a great introduction of the eight character qualities that typify Jesus that Jesus is going to put in all of his followers. And that takes us to where we launched today. He's still on that hill. And now that the Beatitudes have been delivered, he immediately calls them to become and I just love this, I hope you do. He calls them to become a missional people from day one. Verses 13 through 16, and I read, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town that's built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is heady stuff. Uh, he, he starts out by challenging them to think of qualities, character qualities that they've never imagined that were qualities, poor in spirit, meekness, etc. They, they were poor. This is, this is the servant class primarily that's listening. And suddenly Jesus relates to them and calls what they experience that which is necessary to make them what they are meant to be. And then he immediately, guys and ladies, he immediately says, now get out there. Yes, indeed. They were to be a missional people. They were to be the upside-down people turned right-side-up that would carry new notions to the world. And he uses two metaphors to teach us this. And the first one you saw is in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Let's spend a few minutes on salt. Salt. Uh, I, I found a quote from um, one of the scholars of early Rome. His name was Pliny the Elder. He had been a great military general, and he was also a philosopher and scholar. 
and he used a phrase circa AD 50. Uh, there's nothing more useful in life than, and I don't know how to say Latin, but this is kind of catchy. I'm going to give it my best shot. Sale et sole. Sale, S-A-L-E, et sole. There is nothing more useful in life than salt. Sale et sole. Salt and the sun. Whoa. If I was salt, I'd be impressed. I mean, to put right, be put right up there with the sun, pretty good. Salt was so precious in ancient societies that it was often used as if it were money. Soldiers were often paid with salt when there weren't enough Roman coins. You say, why? Well, we know some of the qualities of salt. We're all aware of, of, of cutting our, ourselves, and, 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 and then if you uh, grew up in California like I did, then you jump in the Pacific Ocean, and you find that that salt is just helping to heal your wounds. Salt was used as a medicinal uh, element. That's one thing. But the most important thing about salt, the thing that made it so precious, was that it preserved things from rotting. Of course, there was no ice. They had salt. Salt was needed to slow the spoiling of the great proteins, of the meats, of goat, of lamb, of fish. Without salt, they would get rotten quick and cause sickness. Salt was rubbed into them, preserved them over time. It was precious to keep them alive, not for its flavoring, for its preserving. It preserved things. And I love what uh, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who was an English pastor in the 1950s, good friends of Chris Lyon, I'm sure, uh, and, and he, he, he said this little thing. He's really good. He, he was a great preacher. He said, if salt was needed, rottenness must abound. Right? If salt is needed, rottenness must abound. Now, Jesus, the first metaphor he uses with them, now that they're beginning to understand these beatitudes that they are to be, is he says, you are salt. My kingdom creates salty people who go out into the society to seek to preserve it, to withdraw the rottenness, to make it better, to hold it together. Again, another thing that Jones said, he says, the world is bad, it's sinful, it's evil, and any optimism with regard to it is not only unscriptural, but falsified by history. We know what's out there. We know it's in us that needs to be fixed. But we know it's out there in the world. And the first thing Jesus does is he says, my people will be salt. They'll go into all the corners of the world, and they will seek to preserve what is rotting. They will seek to lift up what is right, what is good. You heard Phil say that, w that we, hope to, we hope together as a church to throw a half a million hours into volunteer service into the places, the cracks, and the crevices of our society 
We've got one of our pastors this week meeting with one of our congressmen to talk about refugee resettlement. We're, we're out there. You're out there. Je the first thing Jesus says is, get out there <laughs> and be salt. I don't know where God's calling you, but I do know that salt can lose its saltiness. In fact, most of the verse where Jesus talks about salt is talking about what happens when it's not salty. He says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, this probably had a couple of meanings. One was, again, Jesus came to renovate what the Jewish people had forgotten, that they were meant to be a light and salt to the world. And this was another way of Jesus saying, the salt has lost its saltiness. I read an illustration that in the ancient world, uh, they would often cook outside, and they would, they would build their, their ovens on tile bricks. And the tile bricks, of course, could preserve if, you know, sparks were flying and, and preserving fire, but it also heated all those bricks. And so there was radiant heat that was happening. Do you know what they put under the tiles? They put salt. Salt was the ground cover between dirt and tiles, which were then heated by the fire to create that which could prepare their foods and warm them. But after a while, the salt base would lose its saltiness because it mixed with the pollutants that were in the dirt. And it had to be thrown out and trampled underfoot because it wasn't any good for anything after that. Jesus is saying, the worst thing that can happen to salt is when it loses its saltiness or never realizes that it is salt. It's no good for anything. It's trampled underfoot. Jesus is being a strong leader here. I called you to be salt in a world that is rotting. Get out there. Wow. Now, uh, to illustrate this, I hope I don't ring too loud here. I brought some salt. And this is kind of fun. It says Morton salt on it. That's the most famous kind. Iodized, of course. The property that you're sitting on was once owned by a Mr. Morton and family who started the Morton Salt Company. As the generations went on and ownership was passed to different peoples, one of those persons was a woman by the name of Shirley. And Shirley began praying that because this land was so beautiful here that someday it might be used for something that would bring glory to God. We are on 47 acres that were originally owned by the Morton Salt family. And the prayers went out that this place would be, may I say, the salt of the earth. Amen? Pretty good. Should I use this next service too? It's pretty good. It's Marie who tells me, use objects, use objects. All right. Jesus isn't done, however. Look where he goes from there. Verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. 
Saleh et soleil, salt and light, sun. You are the light of the world. A town that's built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And when they do that, it gives light to everything in the house. You are the light of the earth. Now, Jesus, I don't think, ever said that he was the salt of the earth. But he did say he was the light. John chapter 1 in him was life, and this life was the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never overcome it. Starts right out in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, verse 12, I've got it for you on the screen. It's a familiar passage. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the first metaphor Jesus uses for us being a missional people, upside down people turned right side up to make the world better, is he uses salt and then he transitions to the concept of light. And he says that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. And all who believe in him will no longer be in the darkness, but they will be in the light, and this is the language of regeneration, of made new, of being born again, of moving from darkness to light, from the power of evil to the kingdom of God, as Paul will say. Jesus was the light of the world, but he invites us into that, because right here in chapter 5, he says, and you salty people, you, you are the light of the world. As he is the light, we are the light. As I am the light, says Jesus, you will be the light of the world. I love this passage that Paul gives us. And it comes from Philippians chapter 2. And once again, we'll put it up for you. Incidentally, I see many of you taking notes in your new study guide that we've provided for you. Again, those are free on the outside for you there. And uh, hope that you'll use those. But let's look at this next passage the Apostle Paul gives us concerning light. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. <laughs> I like the way I said that. Arguing. Just kind of popped out. Uh, so that you may become blameless and pure. What does that remind you of? The attitude. Right? The attitude. Pure of heart. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Have you seen that before? Isn't that great? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So we, those in whom God is pouring his spirit, who become beatitude people, enter the world to preserve it from evil and to shine the light of Christ's truth upon it in every way, shape, or form. Jesus wasn't imaginative, you know. 
I mean, he was pretty smart in every way that there goes. After all, he's Jesus. But these are interesting metaphors he uses. To, and and, and what, what, a, what, what an imaginative metaphor can do is it can open our minds to see truth that has been given us in rational speech in a way we'd never seen it before. And it, and it gr- takes a hold of us and it holds on to us. You are like stars in the sky. Bringing the light of the world everywhere. Oh, I love that. Now, in ancient Israel, of course, this had even more meaning. I wonder how many lights we've got lit in this room right now. Some of you children that are bored with my talk will probably start counting right now. There's a whole lot of them. We, we, we've got light to share, don't we? Not then. The average home had one little lamp. Kind of looked like a gravy bowl that you could lift up and hold. A- and, and the oil and the wick were placed inside it. And as it started to get dark, they would light that one lamp. And they would put it on a stand. And it would give light to the whole house. And if someone needed to go outside, if, if there was no moon, it was pitch black. Uh, have you ever been in a cave? When there's no light, that's what it was like in the ancient world. And so they would take the lamp and they would take it with them as if they were the light going into the outer doors. Light was precious. Light was essential. Light guided you. Light rescued you from all the dangers in darkness. Light was precious. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And then he goes into, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither does somebody light a lamp and then cover it with a bowl. You take the bowl off. You let the light be seen by all. You know it. Sing it with me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Now, I know, because I'm a lot like you, that there's lots of times I don't feel very shiny, and I don't feel at all salty. That's why I need God so much. Every day, in a hundred ways, I need Him because He is always light. And when I came to know Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old, he invaded me with his presence through the Holy Spirit. And a light was placed inside me. As I often say to people, I have miles to go before I'm good, but I'm gooder than I was. You got enough salt and light in you to shine, folks. And we're supposed to do it. Now notice Jesus, again, he warns. He says, you do not hide this light. Again, maybe a reference to what had happened with the nation of Israel. Not the new kingdom, 
The kingdom's all about light. And, it, and, and notice when it says, do you put it on the stand? You put the light on the stand, the little lamp? Well, so it gives light to everyone in the house. What do you think Jesus is talking about there? Our light is to shine to the whole world. Every crack and crevice and corner. The Church of Jesus Christ is the largest institution on planet Earth. There are more professional workers in the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States than there are federal workers. Jesus knew what he was doing when he said, salt and light, get out there. 83. And now in 2018, the salt and the light is spreading. Oh, there's still rottenness, there's still evil, and, and, and there's still darkness everywhere. But can you imagine what it would be if it wasn't for we? Bad grammar, but it made a point. Yeah. Wow. What, what, what gets in the way? Three or four things I thought of. Some of us don't shine and aren't salty because we've ended up compromising too much with the world that we're in. And every Christian needs to take that before the Lord and say, Lord, where am I getting sucked into things that aren't noble? Where am I getting sucked into things that are more about greed and power than they are about meekness and servitude? We we gotta we gotta face up to that, that we can we can get pretty compromised as if we're losing our saltiness or covering our light. Compromise. Number two, it can just be a lack of love. At the end of the day, do I really care enough about my neighbors to go knock on a door and say, hey, Mel, how's Doris doing? Or, or does my busyness and my constant turning in curvatus day, turning in on self, take away my salt and my light? It's just I really don't care enough. Oh, God, forgive us. Oh, God, Heal me of my self-focus. Make me salt and light. Third, it, it might be that we fall into the trap that ancient Israel did of the world is so bad out there, we have just got to build nice buildings and come together as much as we can and basically hide ourselves from the world because the world is really bad. And we can become separatists instead of those that are engaged. And finally, some of us are just afraid of persecution. I don't blame you. I don't like it at all. Persecution because of righteousness, as Jesus said to us last week, persecuted for being a follower of him, going to happen, ridicule, insults, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep, no way I can wish it out. All those things and probably a lot more cause us to not be salt and light. But nothing in the world is as useless as a Christian who hides or denies that he or she is a light of the world. So I call me and I call you to that. Now, I have another object lesson. If you would just look out these windows. Yes, we have windows in this worship center. Okay. <laughs> I just noticed that. That's pretty cool. All right. And, and though you can't see it 
to the top, if you look at the bricks right there and those windows going up, that becomes the prayer tower, which Gary, as I understand, Gary Dossie, who, who led much of the, the building of this whole thing, I understand that it was a bit of an afterthought to put in that tower, which we call the prayer tower, which rises 13, some say, 14, others say, stories into the sky, and it is the highest point in DuPage County, and it is a light and a glow at night. In fact, when I travel a lot, I come back to my house in taxis and such, and they'll say, what do you do? And I say, I, I'm a, a, a Christian minister, and I work in a local church. Which one? And I go, well, it's called Wheaton Bible Church. He says, where's, and they say, where's that? I go, it's on North Avenue. And they say, do you mean that one with the light in the tower? Yeah, baby. Salt, Morton, light, tower. Dumb. This is the identity that God has given us. Now, finally, you say, well, what does being salt and what does light look like? Give us, give us some tangibles here, Lon. Help, us, help me to know a little bit of how I'm doing. Uh, what am I doing? Now, notice verse 16 helps us with that. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the same way, let your light shine before others. I'm sorry if you're an introvert. You don't get any slack in this one. You, you, you will be a lit introvert in your world. A salty introvert. My wife's a salty introvert. And extrovert a lot of the time. Especially when she's upset with me. <laughs> Which is very rare because she's nearly perfect. When you go out, would you tell her I said that? <laughs> Sorry. None of that was in the notes. And you're, you're, you're <laughs> and you're saying, Lon, stick to the notes. Stick to let your light so shine before others that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That word good before deeds is interesting. There's a couple of different choices that the, um, uh, that the Greek language has, but the one that was chosen means not only goodness, it means winsomeness and beauty. So it ties completely into the notion of don't let it, don't, don't hide it winsomeness and beauty that comes out of the believer attaches to the believer's goodness and we're meant to glow to our world. Uh, now, he says good works. I think good works is a requirement in two ways. And they both start with W. Good works and good words. Works and words. Works and words. Good works, good words. Good works. We got a hint of this in the Beatitudes. When Jesus literally says to us, um, if you're going to follow me and you're going to be like me, you're going to mourn a lot. Well, who do we mourn for? Everyone in need. What does it cause us to do? Pray. That's a good work. Uh, you, will, you, will, you will be merciful to the world, a world that is so quick to condemn and to judge and never own up to their own. And God calls us to be merciful. To be merciful is a work. To be a peacemaker. We talked last week about the costliness of peacemaking. 
helping to alleviate, break down conflict in relationships, in companies, neighborhoods, and in society. These are all good works. We also have a very strong belief in what we now call social betterment, wherever we can bring it as people and as a church. Our church believes in the right to life, and our church believes in ethical, um, ethnic and racial harmony. No more discrimination. Our church believes in biblical marriage, and our church believes in the care of creation. I want my grandchildren to be able to live here. Our church believes in providing economic opportunity for all people through good work, and our church believes in refugee and asylum resettlement. Those are just a few of the things we've thrown ourselves into. We've thrown ourselves into education, education, that they're educating first-generation people coming from other lands who don't even speak our language, much less be educated in society. We are in that. What are you into? Undoubtedly, several things. Good works. When people see our good works, they glorify our Father who is in heaven, but only if we make sure we tell them that it's the Father they're seeing and not us. I was in my men's uh, life group, the small group on Tuesday morning, and, I, and when I'm preaching, the guys help me work this thing through, work the text. And one of the things that Lee Lewis said, Lee, I don't know if you're here this morning or not, but he said this really cool thing. He said, man, I can read that whole thing, light and, and, and salt and all of that and good works. If it weren't for the end of verse 16, I would think people would just think I was a great person. In that at all, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We don't want them to glorify us. We want them to glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so you make sure in your good works that you're always telling people from whence it comes. It's easy to do that. Oh, thanks so much for bringing us dinner. This is great of you to think of it. Oh, no problem at all. We were praying for you guys today, and we just kind of thought that's what we should do. Simple. Who have you just said that's in charge of this whole thing? God, yeah. I could go on and on, but we'll have an evangelism seminar later this fall. Finally, the good words. Martin Luther said that he wasn't sure that good works had anything to do with acting well and betterment. He said it's all about making sure that people know that God created them, that God loves them, that God has righteous standards, and that God forgives them, and that they need to be reborn again. Is there any greater work than that, than walking us alongside people? coming into the family of God. Well, there it is. My time's about up. We'll just go out with two other things. Remember that it's only beatitude people that have salt and light. Do like I'm doing. I'm memorizing and meditating on the beatitudes, verses 3 through 12, every day because it's these kinds of people that are salty and light to the world. Number two, keep trimming your wick. <laughs> kind of tying it into the metaphor there. You see that? A wick has to be trimmed. And for me, that's my daily devotions with God. That's my small group. And oh goodness, it's worshiping with you on Sunday morning. These trim my wick. They give me hope. They remind me that I'm salt and light. They refresh me. They remind me of the forgiveness of my sins and they put me on my right path. 
devotions, small group, and, um, and, and just the joy of worshiping together. Uh, our rooted groups, our alpha groups for people that are just thinking about God, all set up to draw people toward Jesus Christ. But let's end with a picture, shall we? Putting it on the screen now. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In reality, it's Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who dies for our sins, who rises from the dead, who offers us the new birth, who promises to bring his kingdom now and finally forever. He is the one that we speak about. Pray with me. Father, unto you, I commit all these thoughts, all these words. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here. Thank you even for those that are just investigating Christianity, how we long for them to know Christ. Lord, <laughs> salt and light, here we are. And now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, go be salt and light to your world. If you need prayer today, come on down. We're here for you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.